Well, when Christy and I were preparing to move to France many years ago to serve as missionaries there, there were many moments of orientation and preparation for going. Many, many great moments of orientation led by many great leaders, mostly moments of orientation offered to us from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship who we were going to serve with. But actually, one of my favorite teachers, some of the favorite moments of orientation we went through did not come from any organization, but it came from a woman from my hometown in East Texas. Now that may seem surprising to you, but perhaps not so surprising when you hear that this was a woman who had immigrated to America decades before, after falling in love with and marrying her husband, who was an American soldier in World War II. She, she heard that Christy and I were moving to France to serve there among immigrants and, and refugees and, and really among the French people as well. And she thought, I need to offer them a meal of hospitality because there's some insight and some instruction that I'd like to pass on to them that I think can help them be successful as they live and serve in France. And so she offered us that meal of hospitality and, and we came and we sat at the table and actually later she even invited us to spend a weekend with her in her family's home in Poitiers, France, where she grew up. And some incredible moments of orientation. I'll never forget the first moment where we sat down at that table with her and she looked across the table quite seriously at me. And she wanted to know, first off, at the beginning of the very first conversation we'd ever had, if I would be willing, if it was offered to me, to partake in a glass of wine. And, and this was very important to her, that, that, that at the very least, I, I wouldn't refuse it in some dramatic way. And it was, it was rooted in the fact that years before she had been accompanied on a trip to serve in, in France among her people and the Baptist minister who had went with her had, had wanted to make a point about his perspective about what was going on at the table by picking up his glass and turning it over. And she kept that with her. And she wanted to make the point that that was not a point that I needed to be making. <laughs> From her perspective, that was a bit of an adventure in missing the point. We also loved then and when we visited to her the lessons that she gave us and the reflections that she gave us about living with crumbs, which was a bit metaphorical in some ways, but also actual, because when you live down the street from a bakery where you're getting your bread fresh every day and you're cracking bread and warming it up and you have to learn, as we do at the table, to live with crumbs. I thought there was probably a parable in there somewhere. And, and, and I loved most of all being there in the place where she grew up and, and having her describe the stories of her life to me and being able to envision that and imagine that. And I couldn't help but think about one of the most significant stories, one of the most touching stories to me personally, as I looked at the opening lines of our gospel passage today. She said, I'll never forget the sights. I'll never forget what it sounded like. I'll never forget the experience. I'll never forget how I felt. I'll never forget the, the, the vision of, of, of people dancing and applauding in the streets, of, of people hugging and, and kissing spontaneously. I'll never forget that moment when we first caught a glimpse of the American soldiers marching down the Champs-Élysées. Because she said in that moment, 
we knew it was true. We knew it was true that after four years of German occupation in France, that the Allied forces had actually liberated France from Nazi Germany. And so there was this spontaneous eruption of elation with dancing and shouting and singing and kissing in the streets. And if we could imagine in this moment a bit of what that might have been like, we might be able to get a little bit better sense of what was going on in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus burst onto the scene. Mark begins by saying here that what he's about to tell you is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and what we know is that gospel literally means good news. But good news about what? A few four short verses later, Jesus says that the, the good news is that the kingdom of God has come near. And what we need to know here is that the, the announcement both of these biblical ideas, both of these biblical ideas, the biblical idea of the gospel and, and the kingdom of God are both intertangled in a way that has a lot more to do with moments like what Madame Hogan experienced on the Champs-Élysées than we might imagine. The word gospel, you know, comes from the Greek word euangelion, which literally means good news, as we said, and where we get the word evangelist or evangelism. It's about the sharing of a certain kind of good news. And to understand what kind of good news they would have heard in this moment, we, we, we might also pair that with the related Hebrew words, the verb beser, or the noun besaro. Those kind of might help us understand what kind of good news this gospel is. See, in Hebrew, beser is often a kind of national news or royal news that is being shared throughout the land. Like in 2 Samuel 18, when a messenger comes to King David from the battlefield to Beser, to let him know that the battle had been won, which told him immediately that because they were victorious, he could continue to reign as king. He could continue to rule and reign over his people. This was good news. Then later, after David died, there was a basaro, an announcement that went throughout the land from a royal herald that Solomon, his son, would now be inaugurated as king. So that the Beser, or the Besara, or the Euangelion, or the Gospel was often related to an announcement of a royal regime change, proclaiming to the people who was now in charge. Are you starting to pick up a little bit on what Mark and John and Jesus are trying to put down here? Much like the sight of those soldiers on the Champs-Élysées or the news of King Solomon's reign or inauguration, the heralding of the Gospel in Mark chapter 1 was about a long-awaited regime change. In fact, after the death of King Solomon, there was this strand, you know, of bad rulers and bad kings which, which kind of culminated in the self-destruction of the nation and, and, and brought them into exile, the good old days. And their memory of them was now a distant memory. But there was this mounting hope rooted in the proclamation of the prophets like Isaiah 
That one day God was going to break into human history and bring about another far more expansive regime change, which would bring about, to borrow the words of the heralding angels from Luke 2, good news of great joy for all people. Are you starting to see it now? Gospel proclamation is what happens when a new ruler is made or born, which was about a whole lot more to them than Oprah talking about news of Meghan Markle's new baby. Because these proclamations, these gospel proclamations right here, are about rulers that actually had real power. It's about what happens when a new regime begins. It's what's going on, what was going on on that not-so-silent night outside of Bethlehem all those years ago. And it's what's happening right here at the beginning of Mark's Gospel when Jesus says, the time has come. The moment you've all been waiting for, looking and longing for, is finally here. Right here, right now, the time for the rule and reign of God has come. God's kingdom is near. It's, it's here. It's not out there in some far out place that you have to reach out for, as he said, in another place. It is near. It is here. So now repent and believe the gospel. Which begs the question, if it was near and here in that space over 2,000 years ago, then why do we continue to see so much absence of it here and now? N.T. Wright captures the essence of this question in the preface of his book, How God Became King, when he asks, if God really is king, why is there still cancer? If God really is king, then why are there still tsunamis? If God really is king, then why is there still tyranny and genocide and child abuse and massive economic corruption? All very good questions. And we could go on. In fact, in addition to the, the so many stories of kindness and beauty and grace and sacrifice and servanthood that we've seen and experienced over the past 15 months, it has also put our sin on full display so that we could also all easily name past and present examples of corruption and treachery and abuse and hatefulness, and, and tragedy in our community, and in our country, and in our world. And, and alongside that, this moment in the Gospel ought to prompt the honest question. If God really did break into our world in a new way, and begin to change things in a new way, announcing the euangelion of an expansive God-led regime change over 2,000 years ago, then what is the deal? Why are things still the way that they are? Why is there still so much poverty and hate and injustice and division and sin in this world? It's a good question for us to ask of God. And I also think it's a pretty good question for God to ask of us. I saw a meme recently. If you don't know what a meme is, it's kind of an internet cartoon that captures something that's going on in the world. 
And in the meme, there were these two older friends, and, and one of the men said, you know, I'd like to ask God why God allows such terrible things like war and famine and hate and racism and homelessness to happen. To which the other guy responded, yeah, I've always thought God might be asking us the same question. And I love this because it's honest. And I also love this because it reminds us both that we have had and do have a pretty significant role to play in all of this. One that was given to us at the outset of creation, actually. Because we all know that in Genesis, in the creation story, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that we were created in the image of God, which means a lot of things, but one of the things it certainly means is that we were created to image God in this world which may make us uncomfortable because that may seem like a place that we shouldn't place ourselves, but, but also it may make us uncomfortable because we have so misused and abused that privilege over the years. We, we, we've created most of the problems that we cry out to God to fix, and we're not all, the only ones crying out in that way either. Now, Romans chapter 8 tells us that all of creation has been crying out for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Creation instinctively knows we have a purpose in this world and has been waiting for us to step up and embrace that purpose, that we were created to be God's emissaries and God's ambassadors and God's stewards and even God's priests so that the world can be what it needs to be, what God created it to be. In fact, this is embedded in the creation story. And I, I was reading about this last week, and, and I actually didn't know this, that embedded in the creation story, there was something within this six-day creation narrative that people that first heard it would have picked up on that most of us probably don't pick up on. And that was that in Mesopotamian culture, there was this common understanding that a temple would be created in six days. And there's actually a pattern you can find in Scripture, a six-day pattern that really parallels this, about, about how a temple can be created in six days. And people in this culture would have known that. And so when they first heard this story and they heard the unfolding of creation in, in six days, they would have instinctively known what God was up to, that God was building a temple. And not a, not a temple like this, not a temple like a, a building kind of a temple, but, but, but the whole earth as God's temple. As, as Psalm 19 says, the whole earth is full of God's glory. And, and in the creation narrative, what we see is the priests that God has entrusted the temple of the earth to, to shape it, to build it, to continue to create it, is us. Human beings are the ones who are supposed to steward and embody God's rule and God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. That is a huge part of our purpose in this world. This has always been God's intention to bring about God's rule and God's reign in this world, not in spite of us, but with us and through us, which is why the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven so slowly. Even, even after Jesus inaugurated it, announced it so many years ago, and all that he did to make that happen, it's why it comes so slowly, why it unfolds so slowly. One rabbi said it like this. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. 
which is the smallest of seeds, but slowly grows into the largest of plants. This is how God's kingdom works. This is why God's kingdom is, as theologians have said for so long, already, but not yet. The kingdom of God is already. There are so many things about the kingdom that are already, but it's also unfolding, and it's not yet. It was inaugurated here that Jesus is coming. It will not be fully consummated until God comes again in that way. It's already, but it's not yet. And perhaps there is no other time in our lives, no other moment in our lives, where we ought to be able to get this the way we can get it right now. We're in, as you heard mentioned, a weekend where we celebrate the anniversary of Juneteenth. You probably know that, that, that Juneteenth happened over two years after the Emancipation Proclamation where Abraham Lincoln says that the enslaved people in, in these United States are, are free. And over two years later, the, the announcement makes its way to these black enslaved Americans in Texas. Two years later, the emancipation was already, and yet, not yet. And even in that moment of announcement, there was a warning that these black Americans should stay put continue to do what they were doing. It was already, but it was still unfolding. It was not yet. The kingdom of God is like this. We can also understand this right now because we're in the midst of this pandemic still. And for over 15 months, we've been in this place where we've been looking and longing for things to happen that would bring this pandemic to an end. And one of the main things that we've been looking for, that we were looking for, for for so long, and we knew it was the thing that could begin to bring it to an end. And when this, when this was created, when it came into being, we knew it would begin to send us down that path, and that was a vaccine. So we hear the good news, the gospel news, the national news of, of the creation of one, two, three vaccines approved for emergency use. And we celebrate that. But we also know that while the vaccine was here, there were some things that were not yet here. Like it needed, it needed to come to a place where it could be widely distributed. So that happens and we celebrate that. But then even beyond that, there's something else that needed to happen. People needed to be willing to receive it. To receive it into their bodies, to receive it into their lives, to allow it to work on them and then work through them out into the world. Right? So that we're living in this time of already and not yet. Some of us are living almost in a complete time of already. Where we're, what we've been waiting for is here. We're able to do all the things that we've been waiting to do. And, and the masks come off and those kinds of things. And yet we have these unvaccinated children. And parents who are caring for them. And because of that, the already is not completely in place. There's so much that is still not yet. For the already to become the not yet, we have to participate in that reality and bring it into being. And this is how the kingdom works as well. It's here. It exists. But for it to spread and grow, it has to get in here, in us. We have to be willing to welcome it and to receive it. It has to become a part of us as it grows in us. It then begins to grow through us into the world. It's already, but it's not yet. And we have a role to play in that. You know, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he announced the euangelion of God's rule and God's reign 
claiming that God was now ready to bring about a new way of life where the last would be first and the first would be last and the greatest of all would be the servant of all and we're going to talk more about that next week. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom would involve things like putting down our swords and seeking peace among us and, and, and beyond us through radical forgiveness and generosity and grace and forgiveness, even toward our enemies. And Jesus not only said these things, but he showed us these things in wonderful and difficult ways. Like when Jesus was being executed. And even as he was being mocked and tormented, even as the world was flexing its muscle, trying to show its strength on him, Jesus then decided to show us what real power looks like by forgiving his tormentors and giving his life for the sins of the world. And then a few days later, when Jesus rose from the dead as the true king, showing us that his love was stronger than even death, he told his followers to spread the euangelion, that all authority on heaven and earth had been given unto him, that a new regime had come into being. A new day had dawned. And the people began to live like it. And they did because they believed it. Do we? It's an important question. Because believing it and receiving it, believing and receiving that Jesus is not only the Lord of all creation, but the Lord and leader of our lives, believing that, and actually living like that is how the not yet of God's kingdom becomes the already in this world. It's how God's kingdom comes and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why Jesus preceded his announcement about the coming kingdom of God by calling the people to repent. The word repent literally means to turn around. To turn away from the life we're living and the sin that has been disrupting our lives and the lives of others and to turn toward God. To turn away from the fear and the self-loathing and, and, and all of the shame and the shaming. To turn away from every alliance and allegiance in our life that doesn't align with the living God and to begin to align our lives up with the rule and reign of God. That's how God's kingdom comes. Collectively and individually. And it's not easy for us to do this. Sometimes choosing to do this in our own lives is impractical. It seems that way. Counterintuitive. And even a bit crazy. But you know, something happens when people finally get free of all of the unhealthy, soul-sucking things that have so entangled them that have so held them captive in this world. And they start living for Jesus and with Jesus and like Jesus. When this happens, you can experience a love and, 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 a, and a liberation. And, and, and others begin, can begin to see this and experience this too. And when that happens, something else happens. It's... It's like what those 
It's like what Madam Hogan saw happening when all the people around her began to break into joy and elation over their liberation on the Champs-Élysées. That news really does become the best news we've ever seen or heard. It becomes the gospel. And in those moments, God's kingdom is here. The table of our Lord reminds us that we have a job to do. And it reminds us of the moment in which we are living. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup together, we proclaim the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. That whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup together, we, we celebrate what Jesus has already done, and we remind ourselves of the work that is yet to be done. Whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup together, it reminds us that the kingdom of God is already and not yet, and that all of us who have claimed Christ as our Lord have a job to do. As the handbells play and lead us in this moment of preparation, may we remember that we have a job to do. May we remember the grace that Christ has brought into each and every one of our lives. And may we remember the claim that our living God has upon each of our lives. We worship.